Will you please welcome our guest moderator, news editor of Empire Magazine, and part of the presenting team on BBC's Film 2012, Chris Hewitt. Hello everyone. Hello, hello. Thanks for coming. Now, it's been four long years since Daniel Craig's James Bond was uh, on the big screen, but he's back, back, back in Skyfall. It opened to a record-breaking £20 million at the UK box office over the weekend and is said to be the biggest Bond ever. But before we meet the man who brought 007 back, let's remind ourselves of the trailer. What do you say about a man like that? Three months ago, you lost the drive containing the identity of every agent embedded in terrorist organizations across the globe. I made a judgment call. There isn't much road left. Take the bloody shot. Seven reporting for duty. Where the hell have you been? Enjoying death. I only have one question. Why not stay dead? There's no shame in saying you've lost a step. I'm your new quartermaster. You must be joking. Also PPKS 9mm short. It's been coded to your palm print, so only you can fire it. Less of a random killing machine, more of a personal statement. Q. 007. I want to meet your employer. Be careful what you wish for, Mr. Bond. James Bond. How much do you know about fear? All there is. Not like this. Not like him. Just look at you. Chasing spies. England. The Empire. MI6. Oh, old-fashioned. She sent you after me, know when you're not ready, know when you would likely die. Mommy was very bad. The two survivors, this is what she made us. Everybody needs a hobby. So what's yours? Resurrection. Now, please welcome the director of Skyfall, Mr. Sam Mendes. Morning. <laughs> that is morning as well. Yeah. Um, well, twenty million pound opening weekend, the the biggest bond it ever. All comes personally to me. <laughs> Do you have a, an account just waiting? Yeah. yeah. Full Skyfall account. Yeah, you must no, be fairly happy with that. Delighted. Absolutely yeah. thrilled. Yeah. Um, yes, and and and. Um, uh, surprised on some level as well. I just, I just, I don't know. I, I didn't uh, feel it would be that it, people would take to it to that degree, and, and mm. so it's been a real, it's really a, a lovely surprise. 
It's a nice, uh, nice conclusion to a journey that began when you were recruited personally by James Bond himself, Daniel Craig. He was the. Uh, I was. He was yeah. the instigator. How did that happen? How did it come about? It's like a sort of MI6 sting. <laughs> uh, I uh, I was at a party. I, he was doing a play on Broadway with Hugh Jackman, and I, I was at a, a Hugh's a birthday party. I don't I don't know Hugh very well, but because I'd happened to have gone to the play a couple of days earlier, he invited me, and I said to you know I know Daniel because. He had been in Road to Perdition, which I did uh, 11 years ago. Mm -hmm. And so I'd stayed in touch and he remained a friend. And I said to him, you know, when are you doing the next Bond movie? And he said, I don't know. And I said, who's directing it? And he said, I don't know. Do you want to do it? <laughs> and um, I can honestly say that I hadn't really thought about it until that moment. And then in that moment, I found myself saying, yes. I had a feeling <laughs> in, the, in the pit of my stomach. And it, the more I thought about it over the next couple of weeks, the better of an idea it seemed. I felt I needed a challenge. I needed. I wanted to come back to England and do something on a big scale again. Yeah. Work on a big scale. I wanted to work with Daniel again, and something had happened to me. I suspect some of the, the other members of the audience when we watched Casino Royale, which is that Bond seemed to come back to life again as a different kind of character and uh, felt relevant and real and exciting in a way that he hadn't for a while. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, it, all, it all seemed to be a very good idea. Then, of course, I had to meet the producers, because really, Daniels uh, <laughs> is not allowed to offer me the job. <laughs> he didn't have the contracts right there and then. No, <laughs> exactly. And I think he, the following morning, uh, after he sobered up, he thought maybe it wasn't such a, uh, it wasn't really his, uh, his position to offer it to me. But anyway, I'm very pleased he did. Absolutely. Was there a romance involved when you heard the words James Bond, and you thought, oh, maybe, is there something that, when you were watching Bond movies as a kid, did you ever think, well, one day I'd maybe like to do this? Or? No, I, yeah. I never in a million years thought I would ever direct a film, let alone direct a Bond film. <laughs> but of course, there's a romance. Um, and I, like anyone, I suspect, or like, certainly most of the boys of my generation began a relationship with Bond 10, 11, 12 years old. And my first movie was Live and Let Die. So I always yeah. had a, a big soft spot and always have had a big soft spot for Roger Moore yeah. and for that particular movie. And I remember vividly how scary and exciting and new and, um, and, and just cool the whole thing felt and how inaccessible at the same time to me growing up in North London. Um, and then, you know, you go through, I think everyone has sort of a, a, a strange relationship, you know, you, you, with Bond. It depends who's, which Bond you grow up with and everyone has different uh, perspectives on it. And one of the things about directing a Bond movie is you do find yourself constantly being bombarded with other people's opinions and, and yes. they're all different you know yeah. because everyone has a different template as Bond uh, some are Sean Connery some are Roger Moore some are Pierce Brosnan whatever and some wanted to be funnier some wanted to be more serious some wanted to go back to the Fleming some want more gadgets some want less gadgets some want more comedy less comedy and so you get very used to kind of cutting yourself off from the white noise of everyone's opinion and just trying to make your own Bond you know and, yeah. and what I'm most proud of for this movie is that it's very much my the, this, the movie I would I wanted to see you know mm. um, and at the same time I've tried to channel at various points my inner 12 year old that little boy <laughs> sitting watching Live and Let Die who just you know uh, want to give kids and adults that level of excitement again because it's a, it's a big thing Was there a moment when it finally hit you perhaps on set that you were directing a James Bond film because I know Javier Bardem said there was a moment <laughs> his first day a silver the bad guy he couldn't get his words out because he suddenly realized yeah i'm a bond villain yeah i saw it happen he had an out he obviously had an out-of-body experience he was in the middle of a speech <laughs> and he just blanked completely and he and he and he, he pointed at judy and danny was that's judy dench that's james bond what am i doing here you know it, it was it was delight it was charming because you know he had a moment where he thought i'm in a bond movie you know <laughs> and uh 
Yeah, I had a few of those moments, but it, it's funny, you're so focused, there's so much tension and so much pressure on a daily basis with any movie, let alone a movie of this scale. You, 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 you have those moments when you're on your own. Um, I had them a couple of moments when I finished the movie and I looked at it and I realized that I'd made a Bond film. But you, you're in such a tunnel the whole mm. time and so obsessed. And also you've got, we had a very little time in post on this movie. So I, mm. I was working on it right up to the moment that I, we screened it for the first time. Literally 48 hours before the first press screening, I was still making changes, you know. So getting a distance on it, uh, I think that's going to come, you know, <laughs> maybe in a year's time when I, when I, when I, I bump into it on TV or something, and I and I see it with some objectivity for the first time because it's a very difficult thing yeah. to maintain objectivity, and a lot of filmmakers don't like to. I mean, Ridley Scott, for example, never watches his own movie ever again. You know, from the moment he finishes it, and I kind of understand why. It's a very, it's very odd that whole that whole sense of you, you you've got no distance on it, and you only see the flaws and the things that you wish you'd done differently. You know, so you talked about the white noise surrounding you on, on a movie like this, and. Traditionally, probably more in the 60s and 70s, Bond directors were seen as very much uh, people like uh, you know Lewis Gilbert and uh, John Glenn, people like yeah, that, and Guy yeah. Hamilton. They would they would direct the actors, and the action sequences would be very much left to the second unit. Mm. Uh, was that the case with, with you, or did you try and impose yourself on the action sequences as well? And I know it, I, I, it's entirely uh, I, I impose myself on it all, and I yeah. think you have to now. It's it's very different, you, you know. Uh, now we are surrounded by um, action movies and movies that are on a big scale. You know, franchise films are take up, I would think, majority of the marketplace in terms of the number of people who go to see. I mean, in those days, there was no such thing as a, a franchise. There was no such thing as a you know continuing series of pictures. Uh, Bond was the first and remains you know the oldest, which is why it's been going out know, 50 years. Um, and I think that uh, therefore the demands are much greater. Um, and I think you're in a very interesting time now, which is maybe not entirely healthy, but it's what it is, which is that middle-scale films, yes. movies that I've made for the last 10 years, 50, 60 million dollar films, let's say, are not being made at all anymore. They're making very small films in the independent sector, which have to fall approximately below 25 million dollars, or they're making enormous films, um, and they're making a lot of them. Mm -hmm. And so you're having this odd moment where um, filmmakers who might not have uh, addressed bigger films in the past, uh, if they want to work on a big scale, they sort of have to do yes. that. Now, part of the attraction for me was getting my, uh, rolling my sleeves up and getting stuck into action. You know, for me, that was the challenge. I didn't know whether I could do it or not. I, I needed to be shocked out of my usual way of making a picture, you know. And um, I was very aware that when, when it was announced I'd be doing it, people would go, that's an odd choice, you know, he's never done action before. That, that's the sort of thing that gets me up out of bed in the morning, you know, it's a challenge. And it's, uh, uh, so I, I uh, of course, my, my fingerprints are all over it. On the other hand, you need an enormous number of people in, in this world of, of larger scale movies that you wouldn't normally work with. Yeah. I, I mean, I've never worked with a head of special effects, a head of visual effects. Well, I've had visual effects but in the past, but not on, to this degree. Yeah. Head of stunts, you know, and thousands of people involved in all of those depart those three departments who I learned things from and who who I was uh, uh, you know feeding off the whole time and who helped me along with a brilliant second unit director Alex Witt put those sequences together but for me 
the, the most important thing was to previs them and storyboard them and conceive them way in advance. Yes. So I felt I could establish the style with which I wanted to do action. You know, I didn't want to put seven cameras up and shoot handheld and wobbly cameras and what have you. That's just not how I wanted to do it. I wanted to shoot this movie in a much more classical way um, and to prove that action can still work within that, you know. So, uh, and I needed to impose that because I think a lot of the time people have got used to shooting action in a certain way over the last five or six years. And it's not always this way. And this is slower because yeah. the camera needs to remain still. You know, it's, it's mu we're, we're being much tougher about the way things were lit. I was working with a a great cinematographer who oh, is yeah. used more to working on one and two cameras than five. Yeah. And uh, so it, it was also persuading people that it was going to take a little longer as well. And uh, one of the great things about Bond over the years is, by and large, it's, it, it does stunts practically. Uh, yes. It does things for real. And again, that's something you wanted to do with this. And Absolutely. I, I feel that audiences now know the difference between a real explosion and a CGI explosion. You know, I think that there's a weightlessness that has crept into big scale filmmaking in terms of visual effects that somehow detaches you as an audience from the image, doesn't feel the, you don't feel the power of it. So I, I, I did what Bond has always done to a degree, which is to create it for real as much as possible and then use visual effects to supplement it, yeah. enlarge it, develop it, whatever. But there's always a core of reality in everything. Um, I think there's maybe only I don't think there's a that there's a there's maybe only one shot in the in the entire movie that is built from scratch, if you know what I mean. That that is just built in a computer. Um, in fact, I don't know. You know, I don't think there is one. Okay. Um, but of course, you know, uh, when you're making a fantasy movie or you're making a, something that has an, uh, its own universe, it's essential to use visual effects. But with Bond, it always has to maintain a core of reality. So when you have Daniel Craig on top of a train, you actually have that Daniel is Craig Daniel Craig on top, on top of a train. train. Yes, yes, he is that mad. Um, <laughs> you know, it's a, it's a uh, one of the great things about working with Daniel as Bond is that he will he will put himself in those situations, and it's not it's not so important. I, I mean, there are ways of tricking an audience, you know, face replacements and all that sort of stuff these days where you put a stuntman in and you put Daniel's face on the stuntman. And, of course, in shots which are super dangerous, you know, then you, ha you have to do that because there's no way you'd ever risk someone's life, particularly not, you know, Daniel Craig. Um, but uh, a lot of the time he did things that he didn't have to do. Mm -hmm. And I said to him, you don't have to do this, you know. And he said, well, let me have a go, you know. Let's... Let's, I'll stand on the train and let's try fighting on the still train. Right now, let's take it at 10 miles an hour. Now, 30 miles an hour. <laughs> Before you know it, he's traveling at 50 miles an hour, you know, doing a fist fight on top of the train, 500 feet drop below. And my heart, connected by a wire that's thinner than my finger. And, and, and I'm thinking, please don't fall off, you know. Uh, and I was, I was genuinely, my heart was in my mouth. But what happens when you have a guy doing that is that um, everyone is lifted by it, yeah. you know. It, it, it's, it's you, you know, God help you if you're a member of the crew when you see your leading actor do that and you're not giving 100%, you know, because he obviously is. And it's a leadership thing, you know, you, you know he, he shows the way. Um, and also, you can feel it in the film. I think it seeps into the film, that kind of commitment, that kind of physical commitment. When he runs, when he fights, you feel as a man really on the edge of what he's capable of physically. Mm. And so I think it, it, it does affect the whole atmosphere of the film, both making and, and watching it. Well, we have a couple of clips from the film, both of which involve Daniel Craig on top of a train. Uh, <laughs> I think let's take a look at the first one and then we'll have a chat about it afterwards. Please uh, roll the clip. Thank you.
I have to say, as a, as a Bond fan, I think that may be one of the coolest things I've seen Bond do. The, the, the quick clip of the cups is it's amazing. How difficult was it to get that, that shot? I've got to tell you, the shooting of the cuffs is Daniel's idea. That was, uh, you know... Um, because occasionally he had a little thing, he had a little sort of private smile, you know, and, and uh, I'm just going to try something, Sam. I'm going to try something to say, you know, you may not like it. And I just laughed when I saw that because, you know, that was him, him jumping. Again, it looks as it's, it was as dangerous as it looks. Um, how long did it take us? <laughs> yes. Well, you know, it's all shot in so many different parts. Um, you know, you, you, the whole opening sequence of the movie, which is designed as a kind of uh, almost a series of Russian dolls, you know, it's, you think it's going to be one kind of action sequence and then it's another and then another and another mm. starts as a car chase and then it's a, a shootout and then it's a bike chase and the bikes go across <laughs> roofs and through alleyways and then he gets from the bike to the I'm not going to tell you how if you haven't seen it onto the top <laughs> of the train and then then it's a, a they chase across the top of the train and then he gets into this 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 digger and it's interesting how action sequences develop because you know you um, you're constantly trying to find um, uh, you know, ideas within ideas, you know, so you, you've already got the idea that well, they're chasing across the top of the train and then someone in a meeting, probably somebody like Gary Powell, head of stunts or Alex Witt says, well, what if there's some heavy machinery on the train? What if we, um, you know, and then it, someone says, well, what if you got into it? You know, and you do, you, you, you know, you, you cherry pick, hopefully, the, the best ideas that come up. Um, there's lots of ideas that are crazy and you say, no, I don't think we can go that far. Um, and that was one we went with, and, and then you know you you, lo you pursue it logically, and then one of the characters is uncoupling the cars, and he has to keep the cars together, you know, and then it's it's a series of of uh, complicated, you know, um, a mixture of I mean everything you see there is real, but it's supplemented mm. by visual effect, uh, you know, and it's uh, shot probably across two months at various points. Uh, you know, because each each thing is a, has a very different set of demands. You know, the digger going into the roof of the yeah. carriage, you have to set up the roof of the carriage in a particular way. Also, you know, that shot underneath uh, the digger claw coming into the roof with the with the you know, it's a it's a train full of people and it's very dangerous. <laughs> so you know, they have to be uh, uh, organised in a particular way. But also, that I wanted that feeling that, um, and this was something the editor, who's a great man called Stuart Baird, was very keen to get that feeling that that you're reminding the audience all the time that the the thing is pulling apart and so yes. for example you know the way in which the digger peels back the roof of the train yes. that's real but the sparks are the visual effects okay um and the sense of it of it coming under pressure you know pr i probably i can't even remember now added a little bit of camera shake in post to give it a sense that everything was about to you know explode um and that big wide shot when he's walking which I, you know, I deliberately held that master uh, of Daniel walking across the digger arm, um, you know, for, which is a helicopter shot. Mm -hmm. um, again, totally different setup on a, on okay. a camera copter. Uh, to hold that long and, and to add that visual effect of, of, the, of the back of the carriage splitting as he's walking um, and then cut to the real Daniel <laughs> jumping off onto the, onto the train as the whole back of the train is pulled away, which again was a whole different setup. You know, each each piece of that takes two days to set up and shoot, um, and there are other things happening in between. So a few uh, sleepless nights in trying to keep track of all these things. Yeah, the, the, the most difficult thing is holding the whole thing in your head and yeah. and trying to work out if you've missed anything. That's the most difficult thing, and and that's where you need a good editor who's editing alongside you, to make sure that you know he's able to say, well, uh, there's a there's a there's a missing piece here, you know. Um, but yeah, there was a few uh, 
a few few sleepless nights. <laughs> and do you, you know, how involved do you as well with things like the 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 credit sequence, the classic Bond credit sequence, credit with sequence with the Adele song? And yeah, the credit sequence I had a very strong I, general idea for. I said, yeah. you know, um, Bond is 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 effectively drowning and going into the underworld, um, and as he sinks down, it's a little bit like Alice going down the rabbit hole. He mm. passes by both memories and uh, a kind of um, uh, uh, almost a, uh, we tell the story of the film yes. you know, but you, you wouldn't know it yet but then you give that as a general idea to, to somebody as clever as Danny Kleinman and then he's able to take it to another level you know mm. and, and he's immensely skilled and we talked about point of view a lot I mean it's, it's Bond's point of view but really he came up with a series of storyboards I gave notes on the storyboards he did them again then he pre-visits it you give notes you know and then you pray as as we uh, our prayers were answered for a great song, you know, and uh, and uh, sure enough, Adele delivered that, and then he started working to the track itself, mm -hmm. which of course gives gives him so much, you know. Um, so it's it, it's as everything in the movie is a kind of confluence of different people, you know, and a, and a real sense of everyone coming together to try and create a unified vision, and and that's a good example of it when it I feel it works. I mean, Danny's work is wonderful in that. One of the unique things about Bond is that you're not just competing against other franchises, say Bourne, Batman, whatever. Yeah. You're competing against 50 years of history and mm. 22 previous other uh, previous yeah. films. How do you make things distinct and different while also nodding to the past? I think you've got to believe that you know just by dint of the fact it's yours, it's going to be different. Yeah. Um, but but what I did, uh, and I was lucky enough to have the time to really work with with the writers on on the script, and and for me what I did almost as an exercise to begin with is to say, right, let's take away the things we know we're going to have to do. We're going to have to do action. We're going to have to have the girls. We're going to have to have glamorous locations. Let's put them to one side. We can sort that out later. What's the actual story, you know? Uh, what's Bond's story? Because I think that there was a time when, when you know, uh, we sort of left Bond behind as a character in, in the mid-70s, and, and Bond became the glue mm. that, that, that stuck together a series of glamorous locations. And, yes. You know, uh, and then you know, he came back as a central character very, very strongly in Casino Royale when he had a love story, and you felt that there was something at stake for him. So I wanted to work out what Bond's story was um, and then add in everything else. Um, but at the same time, I was eager to uh, sprinkle in in a mischievous way, you know, elements of Bond that I love. And I, I loved, it's like I was saying earlier, uh, you know, was channeling my own, my inner 12 year old. And, and I wanted very much to get the Aston Martin DB5 back in, yep. but to do it in a way that made sense in the story um, and to add in all sorts of elements from Fleming <clears throat> that he mentioned in the books that had never been put in the movies, like Bond's past, his parents, and certain other elements that I wouldn't give away if you can catch up and see the film. So, you know, it's, it's just trying to balance all of those things and, and at the same time, you know, tell a, a very specific personal story in the middle of it. There's also the, the, the uh, return of animals to Bond. We saw in the trailer a scorpion, which is that a nod to Diamonds Are Forever? And there's our no, is there a scorpion? You see, this there's is the thing I don't yeah. know as much about, uh, <laughs> as I, you know, Bond. This is, this is the other shocking thing. It's like, I, one of the things I decided was I had a choice. I'm doing a Bond movie. Do I sit down and watch the whole lot again? Yeah. Or do I not look at the whole lot again? I don't want to look at sort of half of them. And I decided not to go there because I thought, otherwise, I'm just going to be bombarded with images. And I'm, I'm trying to make a film. Images from other films are not helpful. So I went to the books m more than the films. Okay. But as a consequence, you know, I do feel like I, I, I'm, uh, I don't know as much about Bond <laughs> as a lot of other people, <laughs> yourself included. So no, it wasn't. What it was was a, a, an, an attempt to find a kind of game 
a, a deadly game that 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 indicated in some way the depths to which Bond had had sunk uh, at that point in the story, uh, where he doesn't really care whether he lives or dies anymore. Mm -hmm. um, and it's a, so it's a kind of Russian roulette. That if if anything, there was a little bit of in my head Christopher Walken in Deer Hunter. You know yes. that sort of sense that he's gone. He's just gone. He's yeah. gone somewhere else, and he, he may not be able to come back. Mm -hmm. So it's trying to find a way that those moments, those those ideas, mean something to the story rather than simply being, you know, a, a throwaway detail. Uh, okay, so let's see how Bond gets to that point now. There's the second clip from the pre-credit sequence, and it's more Daniel Craig on top of a train. Oh, more. I may have a shot. Clean. Repeat, I do not have a clean shot. There's a tunnel ahead. I'm going to lose them. Can you get into a better position? Negative, there's no time. Take the shot. I say take the shot. I can't, I may get bond. Take the bloody shot. And then, of course, that fades into Adele and the credit sequence, and, and off we go. Yes. Um, but that, that sets up an interesting theme that runs through the film of a, a sort of broken Bond, trying to put himself back together. And there's, uh, without giving too much away, there, there are numerous references to Bond aging, <laughs> to old versus new, to old dog, new tricks. Was that something that you very much wanted to put in? And I guess Daniel as well. Yes. I mean, I, I, uh, I did. I wanted to test Bond to the limit. I wanted to ensure that that he wasn't pretending to be a younger man you know and, and that he we were making use of people's real ages and their real dramatic weight mm -hmm. um so daniel does have to sat, stand there while people call him old and finished quite a lot <laughs> uh, which takes a certain amount of strength as an actor i think but uh, to be confident about you know uh, not not pretend to be a younger man and uh, 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 but of course the theme that runs through it is you know when he, he comes back, as it were, from the dead, everything is changed, everything is different. Um, there's a different queue, there's a different MI6, it's in a totally different place, M isn't giving the orders anymore, everything's changed. And I love the idea of him really asking himself, well, what's the point? Why don't I just go back to my anonymous life again? Wh 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 why do I continue with this insanity? Um, I mean, there are answers in the movie. Uh, and so really the whole story is about testing why do we need the special, the secret intelligence service? Why do we need secret agents? Why do we need Bond? Mm -hmm. And by inference, why do we need Bond movies? There's a sly, <laughs> uh, you know, wh how, why has it endured? Why do we still endure, you know, a, 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 a figure whose roots are so firmly in the Cold War mm. um, uh, and, and yet somehow still he seems to symbolize something more than he first appeared and continues to regenerate himself and to be reborn generation after generation now three generations of people growing up with these movies so for me it was a it was a way of trying to make sense of that as well mm. and that's what the discussion of the old and the new is is there for in the movie and did you make sense of it did you uh, come up well with i think we've we've done we've got a few answers in there yeah. and i think what i'm most pleased with is that there are also people stating the other side of the equation, you know, um, MI6, I mean, you see it in the trailer, you yeah. know, Silver, Javier Bardem's character saying MI6, you know, England, the empire, MI6, you're living in a ruin as well, you just don't know it yet. Um, and there's many times M is told that she's a relic as well. Um, 
but I think that probably the, the movie does come down on on the side of old old fashioned values in a way. Um, and the third act of the movie is constructed around an idea of kind of back to basics, yeah. which I think is very uh, very much what I've. I suppose there's some element of personal nostalgia involved in that. <laughs> and one of the classic elements of Bond as well is the, the Bond girls. And we saw one there, which is Naomi Harris's Eve, and the other one is Bernice Marlowe's uh, Severine. But interestingly, the, the main Bond girl in this film is Judi Dench's M. Can you talk about that and uh, the relationship between Bond and M? And it's very pivotal to this film. Yes, I mean, I think that, it, you know, I can't talk about it greatly because I don't want to give the story away for those of you who haven't seen it, but I, I feel like, um, you know... Uh, I felt that was a relationship that hadn't been explored um, and that to a degree uh, Bond had been trapped in playing the same scenes for years with M, Q, Money Penny and the usual MI6 folk and that somehow we needed to break that and open it up again. Um, so <clears throat> that's something we were, we were very interested to do. And it, it you know, I think it's, the movie's leading somewhere big um, that I can't really talk about, but knowing that, 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 that where we were headed the whole time mm. um, was very helpful. Absolutely. It's got a fantastic cast, probably the best cast seen in the Bond film. You worked with many of them, Ray Fiennes, Judi Dench. Was it a, like a, an old reunion in a way? It was very nice. I mean, you know, if you're going to come home, have you, I mean, I made five American movies and, you know, to, to make a, finally make an English film, to come back with a cast like that and with people who you know and feel comfortable with is, is, is an added bonus, really. Um, and, and also they just, you know, they're, they, they, they can do so much with so little, you know, yeah. like, like great screen actors, they can tell a story at unbelievable speed with a look or a, a moment, a line. You know, you find that you need much less, you need less dialogue, you, you, you can compress things. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, I think the film is the way it is, partly because of the actors, they give it so much. Uh, um, you know, and you, you've got people like Rory Kinnear and, and, and yeah. Ben Whishaw and, you know, Albert Finney and Helen McCrory, people are working on, uh, unbelievably high level coming in to do you know relatively small roles which I think is that's one of the reasons why it feels so full as well you mentioned they're coming home after doing five American movies and uh, there's a sense of Bond comes home in this film as well because mm. I can't remember a Bond film that takes place so much in London yeah cheaper cheaper, cheaper for one yeah, thing yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> You don't have to go to, you know. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I was... Uh, this sort of happened that way, really, because, because of the story I talked about earlier. I want to tell the story about MI6. So I, um, you know, MI6 is in London, and that's where we ended up. But I wanted to give London a very specific flavour. You know, it's my hometown. It's sometimes more difficult to see with objectivity places that you know very well. Um, and so I had to kind of... I had to reimagine London as a... Uh, a darker, rainier, much more uh, mysterious place. And we go underground in London a lot. We, we built a lot of those sets. Um, and uh, a lot of it shot at night because I wanted to keep that atmosphere of um, mystery and, and kind of uh, threat yeah. um, in, in London. Uh, and I'm, one of the things I suppose I'm most proud of is, 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 is the feeling that London has in the movie. Yeah. Um, but also one of the great pleasures was, you, you know, it's not every day you get to shut down what the whole of Whitehall, you know, on a Sunday morning. <laughs> and one of my one of my fondest memories of, of the movie is, you know, six o'clock in the morning, the sun's coming up, I'm walking down the middle of Whitehall, and the, totally empty, you know, and just thinking, you know, that was a moment I thought this is pretty cool doing a Bond movie. <laughs> you know, you, not many movies can do this. And we also get to see, and again, this is in the trailer, Bond on the tube. 
Yes. Which is amazing. <laughs> With, yeah. In rush hour as well. In rush hour, yeah. yeah. And, he, and, and, and uh, Q says to him, you know, it's, uh, welcome to rush hour on the tube. It's not something you'd know much about. <laughs> and we, you know, we have a little fun with that. But I, I felt it very important that he was sort of thrown into the middle of this, uh, this sequence uh, where, which happens in underground London, not just the underground and yeah. the tube, but also, you know, s cellars and vaults and, uh, uh, you know, underground waterways and secret tunnels and uh, um, offices that were built during the war. Yeah. Uh, because, you know, London, below London, I mean, I'm not the first person to mention this, but there are so many books and so much. I mean, there is a city beneath our feet here, which is bigger than the city itself. You know, there's layers and layers of, of uh, tunnels and, uh, uh, you know, uh, catacombs and yeah. all sorts. And I saw some stuff that just was astonishing. You know, the, the, the tube crash itself, we, we constructed because obviously... You know, you wouldn't be surprised to hear we couldn't do that for real, <laughs> but we did build it. But we built the catacombs in that, uh, on the 007 stage at Pinewood, based on a catacombs that we discovered, or the brilliant location department discovered under um, Finsbury Park. Uh, uh, completely sealed off, and you have to go down a single manhole in the middle of a field, I mean, literally in the middle of a you know patch of grass, and there is this unbelievably beautiful... Victorian catacombs, uh, you know, arch after arch after arch, stretching on as far as you can see, um, preserved for architectural reasons, uh, inaccessible to the public. And, you know, seeing those sorts of worlds, which one sees all the time, you know, yeah. whether it be walking up onto the rooftops of the Grand Bazaar, you know, and uh, <laughs> place, seeing places that, 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 that you're not allowed to see in daily life, that was one of the big, uh, the big gifts of the movie for me. Wow, phenomenal. Uh, yeah. Okay, so if you have any questions now for Sam, uh, now's the time. Thanks. Hi, Sam. Um, Hello. Hi. Can you talk a bit about the development process? So how did you work with Purvis and Wade? How did they work with John Logan? And how did the script come together? Um, it happened in stages, really. I, I, uh, when I came on the movie, there was a treatment that, that didn't work, and I think we all felt we, we, we wanted to walk away from that. Um, uh, but Rob and Neil, Purvis and Wade, who, who if you don't know, had written, have written or co-written the last three or four Bond movies, um, I was very grateful for their immense knowledge, know-how. And they kind of, with me, over a course of about six to nine months, just chipped away on the basis of a story. Um, and then at a certain point, we got, we hit a dead end, I think. Um, and they had been used to, in the last two, maybe three movies, having some, another writer arrive and take it on from that stage and work with them. Um, and John Logan was the person that I, I wanted to go to, somebody I'd worked with on the screenplay of Sweeney Todd, actually, which I developed and then didn't direct, um, and, and Tim Burton made. And I knew John from that and also as a playwright in the theatre, and he felt like he had the right energy to do it. Um, and then, just as that happened, MGM went into bankruptcy and we had to postpone the movie. Um, and so there was a sort of nine months when I officially was not supposed to be working on it because it wasn't supposed to exist, you know. <laughs> so I was called a consultant for that time, uh, sort of so I could carry on working. And John, who is, is in, in addition to being very, very good, is immensely generous. And, and, and you know, he, he took the script and said, look, don't panic. So much of what Robert Neal has, has done works, but I think this is where we should take it. And his, his confidence and his clarity of vision at that point was very key. And then over those nine months when we were, we were waiting, really, that's when it, it really turned around as a script. A lot of the raw material was already there, but John kind of finessed it, gave it great clarity, 
great confidence. And also, we spend a lot of time just bashing things out, he and I together, in a series of cafes and restaurants around the world, actually, around London and New York and Paris. So um, uh, he really took it to that. And then you know, he was the writer that took it to, through rehearsals and what have you. But I was very conscious all the time to keep Rob and Neil involved at every stage they got you know, they get the call sheets, they get the scripts, they get everything sent. And if they had notes, they would send them to me. And often they were great notes. And right the way through to the preview, they were there. Both they and John were there. So it, it felt like a team right through to the end. And, and I think that that's, you need very generous uh, writers to do that for each other, you know. Um, great respect. And uh, I, I felt very happy with how it worked out in the end. Did you have uh, writers on set? No. no. But that's not because I don't want writers on set. I mean, I, I've worked a couple of times with writers, particularly original screenplays. Alan Ball was there every day of American Beauty, and Dave Eggers was there a lot on, uh, on uh, Away We Go, but, uh, and Justin Hayes on Revolutionary Road, actually. Uh, but uh, John Logan is in America, and he, didn't, he doesn't... Some writers don't like being there. I mean, it's yeah. very, very boring, you know. Um, and uh, so he didn't want to be there. Uh, so there were, you know, people popped in occasionally, but mostly on the end of a phone. Okay. Uh, I think there was, was a gentleman here, and then I'll come over here. Thank you. Hi, Sam. Hello. I thought the film was fantastic, brilliant. Thank you. Uh, it's a modern masterpiece. Oh, thank you. Just one critic. I thought the gun barrel sequence could have been put into the front of the film. Yeah, yeah. Um, You're not the first who said that. I thought, <laughs> I, th I thought that was a sort of silent nod to Quantum Solace, which I liked. Uh -huh. it, it kept a continuation. My question is, uh, would you like to direct the next James Bond film? If not, who would you like to see direct the next James Bond film? Thank you. Um, the, 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 it's funny you mention about the gun barrel because uh, I tried very hard to put the gun barrel at the beginning. My intention was always to do that. But um, if, you, if you see the film, the film starts with Bond walking down a corridor towards camera and lifting a gun. And of course, the gun barrel is him walking, stopping and lifting a gun. <laughs> and so when I put the two together, it looked ridiculous. It was like, you, you, well, shoot, shoot the gun already. You know what I mean? It was like he was doing it and they're not. So we tried and tried and it couldn't make it work. And in the end, I won't give away why I feel it works really well at the end, mm. but it was just it just worked out that way because of the Bond theme and all that sort of stuff. But I, I did try because um, for me, by the way, I love the 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 gun barrel logo because uh, being at the beginning because yeah. I remember when I was a kid thinking it's almost the best bit. You know what I mean? It's like everything is possible in that one moment. It's like Christmas <laughs> Eve. You know, you, you, it just feels like oh, it's actually here. It's a new Bond movie. It and, starts and like no other franchise. It yeah, exactly. No and movie. I love that. Yeah. So I was very uh, you know. So it was it was uh, frustrating at the end to not quite be able to make it work that way. Um, would I? Would I? Do, I mean, I, I've said what I said to, to everybody. I say to you, which is that you know, I felt I put everything I possibly could into this movie. Uh, and this is the Bond movie I wanted to make. And if I, f I felt I could do the same again, then I would absolutely consider doing it again because it, it was a great experience. But that's a big ask, you know. And if I can't, then it, 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 it's part of the fun to watch someone else have a go, you know what I mean? And I think that you have to embrace that, you know. Right, someone else's turn, you know. You have a have a go and see what you bring to it. Um, I mean, there are lots of people who I'd like to see, uh, uh, you know, have a go. Uh, I can't think of anyone off the top of my head, um, but, you know, they're not going to have to look very far. I mean, surely there's going to be people who are eager to do it. There's two queues at the moment in Hollywood. I think there's a queue for Bond and a queue for Star Wars. So it's going to be very... Are you in the queue for Star Wars, incidentally? <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> sorry. Although I'll tell you if I'm sorry. I'm going to tell a funny story, which is like... Um, 
There's the, the photo that's on the thing here, which is Daniel holding an, an imaginary gun, right? You can say, look, wh where's the gun? You know, it's like, and you can make, is it on the photo? Yeah, it is there. You can see uh, he's, he's and it, you, you have to uh, write a caption for this. Uh, <laughs> and my caption is, I'll give you your gun if you're very, very well behaved. Right? Uh, anyway. The prize is directing Star Wars. Exactly, yeah, yeah. Uh, okay, so there's yeah. a gentleman here right at the very back with the, uh, keep your hand up, yes, please. Thank you. Hi. Um, in terms of Skyfall and the films you've made before, how easy or difficult do you find it standing your ground as a director when you've got a studio or producers behind you with what could be contrasting ideas? Um, um, it's never easy. Uh, you have to, as a director, justify what you're doing all the time. It seems to me one of the main job of, jobs of a director is to explain what, what it is that you want. And you have to be good with words and you have to... Um, you know, a lot of the time, your job is to talk and and to describe, whether it's to a department head about I want the set to look this way, I want the light to be over there. This is how I want. This is where I want the the window to be, the door to be. This is who I want to play the part. This is how. This is the scene I need you to write. You have to be able to articulate what it is that you want to do. And, and you know, one of the one of the misunderstandings is, you know, I think, or, or rather, you can get very caught up in a kind of us and them attitude with the studio. All the all producers, you know, and you just got to remember, you're not paying for it yourself. This is not my money; it's someone else's money. And you, if you want to spend it, you have to explain why. And as long as you hold that in your head, you know, and you're in, you're passionate and clear, then hopefully you've got someone who's able to write the check. You know, um, the myth that the bigger the movie is, the more fun you're going to have, the more money you're going to have, the more the train set. Uh, is 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 in, is exactly that a myth? You know, the bigger the movie, the bigger the pressure, the bigger the justification, the 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 more uh, people are going to lose their job if it doesn't work. You know, so you need to be very strong, and you do need to hold your ground sometimes, um, and and uh, uh, be stubborn um, and a bit cussed. And you need to also, in a movie like this, you need to have the strength to say, okay, there's 300 people. Let's say you're doing a big stunt, there's an explosion, it works. Everyone's thrilled, everyone's excited. You have to have the ability to take a half a step back and say to yourself, okay, it worked, but do I like it? And is, is it what I wanted when I first imagined it? Is the camera in the right place? Is it telling the story? Is the actor reacting in the correct way? All of those things. And then have the strength, if the answer is no, to say, I know everyone's happy, I know everyone's thrilled, we've just got a big explosion, it worked, but I want to do it again, and I want to do it differently. Well, 300 people look at you like they want to kill you, you know, <laughs> because they want to go for down the pub and have a drink, you know. Uh, and you have to understand sometimes the job of the director is to be the person who is bitched about in the pub, because you're never going to please everyone. But you have to have a vision and you have to hold on to it. And, and whatever it is, however big the film, it can be a small film, a film you're making, a student film, you've just got to stick with it, you know. And you have to uh, hold that early vision that you had of the film as best you can in your head throughout, and just hold on to it with all your might, you know. There's a, a lady here with a microphone. Uh, congratulations to that fantastic uh, movie. Thank you. Um, I would like to know, what is the secret of being that successful and what, uh, what advice would you give to people who want to work in that business as well? Well, I think, I think a lot of what I just said to the, to the gentleman which is, holds true, which is that you have to be able to uh, inspire other people and you have to be able to uh, admit when you don't know the answers. Uh, and... You have to have good taste uh, in your collaborators and in material. 
Uh, and I think that the most important thing of all is you have to know how to tell a story. A thing that you, you, you know, everyone in this room has got a camera in their pocket, almost without exception. And if you don't, you're about to buy one. And it's a very, <laughs> and it's a very, very good quality camera, let me tell you, right? So you've got a camera that's almost as good as a camera I shot this movie on. And I'm not kidding either. I'm not exaggerating. These cameras are unbelievable. Um, so everyone can make a film, everyone. But not everyone can tell a story. You know, get, try to find a way to tell a story. Study stories. Don't study films. You know, study how, oh, look at that cool steady cam shot, two minutes long, whatever. Big deal. Anyone can do that. You know, really, I mean anyone. Uh, but understand story, understand rhythm, understand audiences, you know, how to hold an audience's attention, even when people aren't moving, the camera isn't moving, the music isn't playing, and it's just two people in a room playing a scene. That's, that's the thing that I think people of, of, often o overlook and ignore. You know, we're used to very small things, sound bites. People are very easily bored. Um, but these things last a long time, two hours, 20 minutes, this movie lasts. Mm. You've got to learn how to tell a story um, and uh, 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 study the masters, um, you know, uh, who, who can do it and have done it better than you, you know, and just learn from them. How long was your first cut? Uh, not a massive amount longer. It was about my first, the first cut of the producers was about six minutes, seven minutes longer than the final film. Okay. Um, and the rough assembly was maybe 245. Okay. Um, so, yeah, never huge. We've got time for two, sure, yeah, two yeah, quick okay. questions. There's yeah. a gentleman here dressed as Daniel Craig in the, uh, in, the, in the middle. As everyone said before, the film was brilliant. Absolutely Thank you. Like three times wasn't enough. Um, <laughs> That's why the box office is so good. <laughs> exactly, I think I made it. You can just give your money straight to Sam. <laughs> <is it? laughs> Um, was it your idea to bring more of the James Bond theme back into it? Yes. Because Casino Royale and Quantum of Solace was, well, I thought they were brilliant, but they were sort of missing the theme. Well, I, I didn't know whether, whether I want more or less because I hadn't studied. I mean, I made that decision, as I mentioned earlier, to not go and watch lots of Bond movies. So I, I, I couldn't remember whether it had been in, in those movies or not. But for me, I remember, actually, I did have a very vivid recollection of watching Mission Impossible 2 and waiting for, you know, Dum, 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 dum. And it never, it never happened. And how it, it really frustrated I was, because I loved that theme. Um, and, uh, and so I, I, I did have a feeling that I wanted to use it. Uh, but, you know, you often go into movies uh, uh, very confident you're going to use a particular piece of music. It may be a theme or it may just be a, just one of your favorite pieces that's inspired you. And more often than not, when you put it up in the movie, it, it doesn't work, you know. Um, I don't know why that should be, but you know it's happened to me a lot. So I, I wanted to put it in, but I wasn't sure I was going to be able to. Um, so when we found and I tried it in the cutting room, the moment that the DB5 is revealed, I was thrilled that it worked so well. Um, it's one of the great pieces of movie music in history. I mean, it's, mm. that's not a, it's a fact, not an opinion. <laughs> it's just it's <laughs> the most enduring piece of movie scoring ever, and and um, I, I think it's brilliant. But when you study the nature of the music, the music is is a is a is a uh, yeah, kind of da 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 is a, is a celebrate it's a moment of triumph and this is a movie that doesn't have many of those it's a movie that tests bond to the limit and it, it's so it's a release of tension and it's very difficult to use that um, unless you've got those grandstanding moments you know and as you see from the clips you know he starts off it doesn't go well that first you know that first <laughs> mission he gets shot um, so there's no opportunity there, and, and later on there were very few. So I was very pleased in the end how, how much we were able to use it. You know. We have time for one last question. There's a lady right here in the front row. If you just wave the microphone, please. Thank you. 
Hi, Sam. Uh, great movie. Thank, Thank you very you. much for it. Thank you. Um, my question is, do you think now for someone who wants to be film director to start in theatre is, is an option? Or something to, to try out. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. I mean, uh, you know, it's an option for a film director to start anywhere. You know, you, you, you could be a painter, you could be a visual artist. You know, um, one of the best film directors of recent years, Anton, uh, you know, Anton Corbin, who, who mm. started as a, as a rock photographer. I mean, you know, it, it's a question of what direction you, you approach it from. Theatre is not, I'm not new in that regard. Everyone from, you know, Bergman to Orson Welles started in the theatre. There are many, Mike, Mike Nichols, many good examples of people who've begun in the theatre and, and moved into it that way. I think that the, the thing is, you don't know, uh, you know, telling stories in sequential images is, is, is something you either have a gift for or you don't, uh, and you have to find out whether you have that gift, you know. Um, and the nice thing is now that you can use these this new technologies to, to, to discover that without, you know, costing very much money. Uh, so I think you can come from anywhere. But theatre is good because you're used to telling stories that last two hours to bunch of people in a room and in that regard it's not very different from film fantastic that's all the time we have i'm afraid uh, sorry if you didn't get your question asked uh, but thanks for your questions thanks for coming thanks most of all to sam Mendes. thank you very thank much you. thank you thank you